0: There we are. Ready to go. All right, we're going to take a look at joints. Just as a way of classifying joints, one way to classify them is according to the um, fibers, the material that, is, that are joining the two bones together. So we end up with a joint referred to as a suture joint. They will be uh, exclusive to your skull, a movable joint between the bones of your skull. There remains, uh, even until uh, almost old age, there will remain a little bit of a fibrous connection between one bone and the other of your skull. Eventually, maybe when you're extremely old, that'll beca- they'll become o- that fiber will go away, and then you'll get an ossification occurring, where you'll get one bone joining another bo- bone. When you get a bone-to-bone connection, it's referred to as a synostosis. Syns together and ostosis refers to bone best example of one of a synostosis type joint would be where the frontal bone of your skull comes together. When you take a look at the skull you can't see where the two parts have, uh, have, have merged together. This one is a suture type joint, it's a fibrous connection, it's found only in the bones of the skull. Immovable, for the most part immovable, but maybe a little bit of movement in there. Um, but that's uh, that particular type of joint. Now. I haven't put it in the book, but there, there is another type immovable joint called the gomphosis-type joint. This is pe- peculiar just to the way your tooth is anchored into either the mandible or the maxilla. You'll notice that there's a fibrous connection between the tooth and the upper or lower jaw. There's a periodontal ligament that will anchor the tooth either into the maxilla or the mandible. It's not in the book, but in most of the cases when you take a look at a snapshot out of a resource, they'll put that gomphosis-type joint. Uh, in there. So that's, once again, it's a fibrous connection. Syndesmosis connection here is a fibrous connection between, in this case, the radius and the ulna. We're going to find the same kind of connection between the tibia and the fibula in the, uh, in the leg. Uh, it would allow a little bit of stability between the two bones. Obviously this is not going to be so, uh, this joint won't, will allow movement because you have to take your radius and roll it over top of your ulna in that fashion. The interosseous membrane then between the radius and the ulna, as as well, will supply or give us a, a good surface area for muscle attachment. So if you go back and take a look at the origins of the muscles that we had, either on the, on the back side for extensors or on the front side for flexors, a number of them were going to pick up part of their attachment or part of their origin from that interosseous membrane. Once again, it would be a, it would be a fibrous connection between one bone and the other. In this case, it's a connection between the radius and the ulna. We'll find the same thing between the tibia and the fibula. When we get down to the distal end of the uh, of the leg, where the tibia and the fibula come together, that once again would be a syndesmosis type joint. It would be a fibrous connection between the the uh, distal end of the tibia and the fibula. All right. So that's another way of being. That's another fibrous connection in that fashion. So we get fibres being able then to connect bones together. We can also get Cartilage. Now, in this particular case, what we're looking at is a transitional picture because what we have here is the epiphyseal cartilage, the growth cartilage. So, what we had up here was a secondary ossification center laying down and establishing the epiphysis of the bone, the top part of the bone, or it could be the bottom part of the bone, the inferior part. And then we would have the primary ossification center here, taking the cartilaginous model of the bone and converting it up the cartilaginous model and converting the cartilage into bone. So the primary ossification center would be heading up this way, taking all this cartilage and converting it into bone. And then if we looked at it the other way as well, the primary ossification center would be going down that way and, and also converting the cartilage model into bone. This is in transition because we still have a little bit of cartilage left, epiphyseal cartilage, between the epiphysis and the diaphyses. So technically when you're looking at it, we have cartilage then are, that are that's there joining bone to bone, but once again it's transitional. It'll go; it will disappear eventually. The primary ossification center will come up this way and convert all of this uh, epiphyseal cartilage in, into bone, and that will end up with a bone to bone connection then, with the epiphysis and the diaphysis coming together. But in transition, we would have cartilage joining one portion of a bone to another synchondrosis, syn once again together, and anything that says chondro is going to make reference to cartilage. So that's a A-type. That's a, a symphysis type joint found here where we have a fibrocartilage disc and the best examples you can find where that would be between the vertebrae and uh, you'll find a fibrocartilage disc between the two uh, pubic bones in the front, the symphysis pubis here. Once again then we have a piece of cartilage that's joining one bone to another. So it's a symphysis type joint, it's cartilaginous, uh, this one synchondrosis, as I mentioned, is, is a temporary one, and we're not going to get to that one to remain. And then a fibrous connection this way, and very, in very different designs here. Okay. Now the one deal about this, because well, there are three different types. There's a synovial one, which is the third type. These two, there be there's no there's no capsule. There's no there is no um, Uh, Yeah, I guess that's the easiest way to put it. There's no capsule going around the joint in the fibrous connection or the cartilaginous connection. When we look at the last type, the synovial, we'll end up with a fibrous capsule going around the articulation of the bones. So here is a very stylized look at some of the components you'll find in a typical synovial joint. Uh, and once again, in this case here, we're looking at the, the two bones coming together. You notice a solid line here. That's where the, uh, that, that epiphyseal cartilage was finally turned into bone. It links then the epiphyseal end to the diaphyseal component of the bone. So this epiphyseal line here and over here, that's what that represents. It's where the bones have come together. When we're looking at the, the bones within the joint itself, the ends of the bones will be uh, covered with hyaline cartilage or articular cartilage. Gives the ends of the bones a very nice, smooth, glassy uh, surface to them so that when you're moving the two bones relative to one another, we uh, try to eliminate as much friction as possible. So the articular cartilage would be here, hyaline cartilage here. (coughs) That articular cartilage will not have a perichondrial covering to it. Uh, Some cartilages that we have have that fibrous um, connective tissue covering. articular cartilage will not have that perichondrial covering. It would create um, movement of the two bones. You would, you would do damage to the perichondrial covering if, if you had it in, a, in a, a synovial joint like that. So we don't have a perichondrial covering here. We have a fibrous capsule that goes around the joint. Now obviously they've taken the the fibrous capsule away from the front here, but the fibrous capsule would also be going covering the front and also covering the back. And a lot of the times, the fibrous capsule in the front and the back of a joint, if you're looking at something like your elbow as an example, uh, that front and back portions of the capsule would be relatively thin. That would allow you for movement to occur. But a lot of the times, what we're going to do is reinforce either the the medial side and the lateral side of the capsule. So there will be thickenings of the capsule here and thickenings of the capsule over on the other side coming around this way. Those would give us what are called collateral ligaments of the joint and we'll find that as an example in the elbow. We would have on this side a thickening of the capsule, which would give us a medial collateral ligament of the elbow, and we'll have one on the opposite side, which will give us a radial collateral ligament um, of the elbow. The front and back of parts of the capsule are going to be relatively thin to allow for the movement to occur. So those would be then referred to as intrinsic ligaments. Intrinsic ligaments are no more than thickenings of the fibrous capsule, and a lot of the time that's going to be on either side to help give protection either on the medial side or the lateral side. Inside the fibrous capsule, we're going to have a synovial membrane. That's what's shown here in the purple. Synovial membrane is a a membrane that's going to be able to to produce a little bit of fluid so that we'll have synovial fluid within the joint. It helps to lubricate the joint. It helps to protect it a little bit in that fashion. And you'll also notice within within this joint that the synovial membrane will come up and attach onto the bone as far as the hyaline cartilage. So when the hyaline cartilage covers the bone itself, we don't need synovial membrane. So the synovial membrane comes up this way and covers the bone as far as the hyaline cartilage. So inside a joint of this nature, of a synovial joint, then the rule is that if this bone inside the fibrous uh, capsule and if it's not covered with articular cartilage, it has to be covered with synovial membrane. And when we get to something like the hip, as an example, we'll uh, um, reinforce that. So that's what the purple represents. It represents the design then of the synovial membrane inside. Uh, Not all synovial joints are freely movable. A lot of them are, some aren't. The sacroiliac joint, as an example, is a synovial joint. It's not freely movable. So simply because it's designed in this fashion doesn't necessarily mean it's it's, uh, freely movable. Now, yeah. the other thing is with this with a synovial joint, some of the other characteristics, and then we'll just go and take a look at some. Uh, this is looking at the sternoclavicular joint between the medial end of the clavicle and the sternum. In this case, we have a fibrous, we'll, we'll look at this in more, more detail. In this case, we have a fibrous capsule that goes around the joint, but we also have an extrinsic ligament here, one that's running from the first rib up to the clavicle. So that would be somewhat, uh, In some joints that we have, we'll not only have a thickening of the fibrous capsule giving us intrinsic, but in a lot of some cases we'll have uh, joints that are joining the bone together here extrinsic, not part of the fibrous capsule, so that would be a characteristic as well in some of the joints that we're going to look at. And in some of the joints that we'll look at, we'll end up with an articulating disc. In this case here, we'll we'll talk about the, the sternoclavicular, but in this case here, we don't have a very good Uh, bone-to-bone configuration. That is, we're not looking at a big socket and the the head of a bone being able to fit into it, so the congruity of the two bones isn't very good. In order then to try to deepen that a little bit and sturdy the joint up, we're going to put in an articulating disc here. So in this particular case, in the sternoclavicular one, we'll have an articulating disc which would sit there. And that, once again, is going to help uh, deepen the socket and make a, 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 a good joint. That would be a characteristic then of, uh, one of these joints, and um, what else are we got to do here? Uh, no, we don't want to do that. In some cases, for your shoulder and your hip, we're going to end up with a fibrocartilage ring, a labrum that goes around, just goes beyond the outer margin of the, in this case, the outer margin of the glenoid cavity. Helps to deepen the socket between the head of the humerus and the glenoid cavity. We're going to run into the same thing. Uh, in the hip joint, we'll have an acetabular labrum, a fibrocartilage ring. Kind of, I kind of liken it maybe to if you took something about about the size maybe of an onion ring and put the onion ring here, kind of fairly thin, comes out just beyond the margin of the glenoid cavity in this case, and it's going to deepen the socket and, and it's going to help uh, sturdy the joint between the humerus and the glenoid cavity, the glenohumeral joint. So in some cases, we'll end up with a labrum going around, right? And in some cases, I guess I'm not going to get it here, am I? Because I'm on my upper. Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to, I'll have to uh, flip it. OK. In some cases, and we'd have to, the best example of it would be in the knee joint. In some cases, we're going to have uh, fibrocartilage discs, menisci. So we have a medial and lateral meniscus in your knee, once again. Uh, that's going to help cushion the, between the femur and the tibia. It'll help deepen the socket a little bit, make a, a, a sturdier joint. And So some, in some cases, then, we would end up with a fibrocartilage disc in between the joints, between the bones, and the knee is a good example of where you would find that. So those are some of the characteristics then of a synovial joint. Not necessarily always um, freely movable. They can be uh, very slightly movable. They'll have a fib- they'll have a um, uh, we'll go back and take a look at it. They'll have a, a, a fibrous capsule that goes around it. The fibrous capsule will be lined with the synovial membrane. The bone inside will be covered with hyaline cartilage, or articular cartilage. We may have external ligaments joining bone. Uh, the thickening of the capsule on some places will form intrinsic ligaments. And we may end up some case, some, sometimes in these joints with a fibrocartilage ring that goes around, a labrum. We may end up in some of these joints with, fibro, with a fibrocartilage disc like in the, the clavicle uh, and the sternum. We may end up with fibrocartilage pads like we had in we got in the knee joint, the menisci. So those are kind of characteristics then of, the, of a synovial joint. All right. now where it says B part, types of synovial joints based on the uh, direction that the joints will move, you don't need to remember that. You can put a line through that if you want. We're looking at, we'll look at the joints, classify the joints according to the way the bones are are linked together, the material that holds the bones together. Um, I'm not worried too much about the different Designs of a synovial joint, um, according to the number of axes of movement that the joint that the joint is under. Not really worried about that too much. All right. So that gives you a basic idea of the d- design of what we're looking at. So now the first one up is the articulation between the medial end of the clavicle and the manubrium. It's a very sturdy joint, and there's probably more chance that uh, your clavicle will break or snap, then this joint will come apart. You'll notice here we have a fibrous capsule that goes around the joint and it would then on the anterior side of it create the anterior sternoclavicular. And if we look at it from the back view, we'd have once again a thickening on the back side, gives us a posterior sternoclavicular ligament. And we have a continuation that joins one, that joins, uh, one clavicle across the manubrium to the other clavicle an interclavicular ligament coming across this way. The joint does have an articulating disc which attaches, top part attaches onto the clavicle, bottom part would attach either onto the manubrium or it could attach onto the first rib. What that's going to do is prevent the medial end of the clavicle from being displaced medially over top of the manubrium. And once again as I mentioned before it would help to deepen the articulation between the clavicle and the manubrium because the configuration of the two bones isn't such that it they um, line up very well so that articulating disc will help it kind of secure that joint between the clavicle and the sternum. And we also have an extrinsic ligament associated with uh, this joint coming from the uh, first rib up to the clavicle, costoclavicular ligament. A lot of the times when you take a look at the names of the ligaments, they really tell you what two things are being joined together. So the costoclavicular ligament will also add some support Uh, to the, uh, to, to this joint as well. Okay. Costal-clavicular ligament is almost going to be acting almost like a check. Because when, when you lift your arm up, then your clavicle is, is being raised up at, the, at its lateral end. Well, it's only going to go, be able to go up so far before that costal-clavicular ligament is going to be stretched. So that would act as somewhat of a check as to how far up you can elevate the clavicle how far up that medial end of the clavicle here will be able to rotate in that, or pivot, in this articulation. When you look, when you hold onto the clavicle, you, if you elevate your, you lift up the point of your shoulder, you can feel the clavicle, the lateral end has to go because the lateral end is attached onto the scapula. The medial end is, it will pivot around this articulation. So when you're lifting it up this way, the medial end is kind of rotating downward whereas the lateral end of the clavicle is being lifted up this way. And once again, if you bring it back down the opposite way, then the medial end of the clavicle is rotating upward as the lateral end of the clavicle is coming down this way. If you bring your clavicle forward, you can feel the medial end kind of rotate this way towards the back, posteriorly, and if you bring your clavicle back this way, you can feel the medial end of your clavicle rotate in the opposite direction. So this is really a pivot joint. It's really going to allow the medial end of the clavicle to rotate uh, downward and upward, forward and backward in its articulation with the, um, with the manubrium. Very sturdy, very sound joint, as I mentioned. If you take any kind of force up your arm and it travels to the clavicle, there's probably a better chance that the clavicle will snap than this joint will come apart. It's pretty sturdy, and it doesn't come apart very easily. So that would then be the description then of the sternoclavicular joint. Alright, then we have to go to the other end. And the other end of the clavicle will articulate with the acromium of the scapula. And this is a synovial joint. Some may, some may not have a, a, a cartilage disc in this joint. The thickening of the capsule around the joint forms the acromial clavicular ligament. Once again, the name of the ligament really tells you what bone or what parts of the bone are being linked together. We get just a little bit of sliding or gliding at this, at this joint. Because when you take the scapula and you rotate it around the curvature of the rib cage, you have to have some kind of give at this joint and allow the scapula to rotate around. So I call it a little bit of glide or a little bit of give at this joint between the acromium and the lateral end of the clavicle here. Some may or may not have a disc in it thickening of the capsule will give us a, a chromioclavicular ligament. Come around this way. And you'll notice within this area here we have, um, it comes in two parts. Uh, the coracoclavicular ligament, this one's looking at it, comes in, in two parts. Remember we've ever looked at the underside of the clavicle, you had that conoid tubercle. The conoid tubercle here would give you the location of one part of this coracoclavicular ligament. It's a ligament that joins the clavicle uh, to the scapula. Make sure then that when the scapula moves, the clavicle moves. The two things have to move together because they are linked together. So, and i mentioned, it, to be more specific, it comes in two parts. But I think in the notes I only called it the, the coracoclavicular ligament. I didn't divide it up into its two parts. Then, if you sep- if you do something, if you if, if you separate the lateral end of the clavicle from the acromium, then you've separated your shoulder. I think that I don't know some some people maybe in the athletic therapy side of it might know, but there are various degrees of sprain of this, from a very mild sprain to completely coming apart. And uh, I would assume then once it's completely coming come apart, then they'd have to go back in and put it back together again. And as well, if it, Completely came apart. Then this uh, coracoclavicular ligament would also probably be torn as well at the same time. So when you s- break apart those two bones, the acromium and the lateral end of the clavicle, then you've separated your shoulder in that fashion. Okay. Did I miss anything? When we take a look at the shoulder joint, the glenohumeral, we're going to have a fibrous capsule that will go around the joint, front, back, top and bottom. Um, We'll take a look at the design of it. The fibrous capsule will come from just proximal to the rim of the glenoid cavity. It's still going to incorporate within the fibrous capsule, you would still incorporate the, the, the labrum, the glenoid labrum, it would still be within the fibrous capsule. Then we're going to take that capsule over and we're going to come just beyond the edge of the articular cartilage or hyaline cartilage covering the head of the, of the humerus. This one, this gives you the anatomical neck of the humerus here. So the capsule would come from just before we have the hyaline cartilage or articular cartilage covering the glenoid fossa and we bring the capsule over here, just beyond, or just distal to where the edge of the articular cartilage would be covering the head of the humerus. That would be the, the design of the fibrous capsule. And when we take a look at it, we have the front portion of the capsule here. This portion here, reinforcing the front, that area is referred to as the glenohumeral ligament. It's supposed to come in three parts, a superior portion, a middle portion, and an inferior portion. Those three portions here. So the glenohumeral is giving us then support to the very front part of the fibrous capsule. The glenohumeral ligament coming in, you can see the three parts coming that that way. Superior, middle, and inferior are the kind of the terminology used to describe the front part of the capsule. And then coming from the base of the coracoid process forward over, and once again, we're coming over just beyond where the hyaline cartilage would be. covering the head of the humerus. We'll have the coracohumeral ligament coming across this way from the base of the coracoid process coming across this. Now that's a thickening of the fibrous capsule on on the roof of the capsule coming across. And that's going to again give us a reinforcing of the top of the fibrous capsule of the shoulder joint by the coracohumeral ligament coming across this way. We have a transverse ligament that's going to cover the long head of the biceps brachii. The long head of the biceps brachii muscle goes through the oops, going the wrong way. Goes through the fibrous capsule. We said before that the long head was going to attach here to the supraglenoid tubercle. Goes through the fibrous capsule of the shoulder joint. Pokes out the front, and then we'll have a ligament that will go across the uh, bicipital groove or intertubercular groove to help keep the uh, tendon of the long head in its position from the greater to the lesser tubercle. That would be then the transverse humeral ligament kind of securing the pathway of the long head of the biceps brachii muscle, coming down that way. Okay. And the other thing you'll notice as well, where we pick up that same uh, ligament we looked at before, from the coracoid process up to the clavicle. Here we included that when we talked about the lateral end of the clavicle and making an articulation with the acromion. And we also then have a, uh, an extrinsic ligament in the package that will go from the coracoid process to the acromion. That's the coracoacromial ligament. It's kind of different in that it's a ligament that's joining um, two parts of the same bone. That would be the coracoacromial ligament coming across this way. And you can see then that the top part of that fibrous capsule, the top part of the glenohumeral joint, has been reinforced considerably. We're going to reinforce it with the coracohumeral ligament coming across this way. We'll reinforce the the roof of it with the coracoacromial ligament coming this way. And we've also got the acromium itself, sitting above the level of the shoulder joint. What we're going to do, however, is have th- the capsule fairly kind of redundant, coming down here, kind of pouches like this. So this then would be the weakest part of the capsule would be down here. You can't have the capsule uh, extremely tight, otherwise you restrict the range of movement that you got at the shoulder. So you have to have some give in the capsule, and that give or redundancy is going to be this portion here coming like this. And, let's see what else we got going here, Uh, look at the same. Yeah, now if you dislocate, if you take the the humerus out of the glenoid cavity here, you would dislocate your shoulder joint, you'd pop it out. Okay. There's another look at the same thing, and the idea of the glenohumeral ligament coming across the front coracohumeral ligament from the base of the coracoid process coming over just beyond where the hyaline cartilage would be uh, covering the head of the humerus over here. And we looked at the coracochromial ligament from the coracoid process to the acromium coming this way helping to reinforce the roof of the capsule and the transverse ligament going across the long head of the biceps brachii helping to keep it into that bicipital groove. And you notice once again we have a little bit of redundancy, a little bit of sagging in the capsule down here. The other thing we're going to end up with in the, around here, will be a series of bursapads. We're going to end up with one that's going to go underneath the acromium, subacromial bursapad. So when we take a look at the supraspinatus muscle as it comes across this way, the supraspinatus muscle will go between the fibrous capsule here of the shoulder and the acromium, and this subacromial bursapad will help to protect that tendon. So when the muscle contracts and the tendon slides, it's not going to be sliding and rubbing up against the underside of the acromion, but rather it's going to be between this bursa pad and the fibrous capsule of the shoulder. So it's going to be protected. So this bursa pad will help to protect the tendon as it, as it comes across this way and attaches onto the head of the humerus. And then if you take that bursa pad and extend it downward a little bit, then you're going to end up with a bursa pad that's going to help to protect the deltoid muscle. As the deltoid muscle comes around this way and caps the shoulder to prevent it from rubbing up against the fairly uh, sharp bony portions of the head of the humerus, we've got this extension of the subacromial bursa pad coming down here to help protect the deltoid muscle as well. Okay. And this one's a little tricky to figure out. but. There's the fibrous capsule. Here's my tendon for my supraspinatus. Sitting above that would be the bursa pad to help protect the tendon. And then here would be the underside of the acromion, so that the tendon is going to be protected from rubbing up against the underside of the acromion by that bursa pad there. And if you look over here, here's the tendon for the subscapularis muscle coming across the front. And once again, we're going to end up with a bursa pad to help protect that tendon. So that bursa pad would run between the tendon of the subscapularis and the actual fibrous capsule itself. That would give us a subscapular bursa pad. Coming across the front of the shoulder joint, we're going to end up with a bursa pad in between to help protect the, that, that tendon. This is the subscapularis muscle here. and that this one is the supraspinatus muscle with its bursa pad helping to protect it. That's a subacromial, and they also, it, it extends over, it becomes a, a bursa pad for the deltoid as well, the subdeltoid one. Right? I can look So that would be then a, a look at the shoulder. Couple of other small little ligaments in there. We've got one that kind of bridges the uh, suprascapular notch. sure I'm doing this right. And we're going to run the uh, suprascapular artery and scoop suprascapular nerve. We have to run them. Uh, the The nerve goes under. Can remember. The nerve goes under the ligament. The artery goes over top of the ligament. Did I say that before somewhere? Or? Uh, I think I'm right. Nerve goes under and the artery goes on top. And those, the nerve and the artery will then help to supply the supraspinatus muscle. Then it's going to go around the neck of the, the spine of the scapula here and it'll then help to supply the infraspinatus muscle and the teres minor muscle. So there is a small little ligament that takes that notch and makes it into a hole and the artery goes over top of the ligament and the nerve goes underneath to get around to the back. Then there's a small one which is relatively insignificant. It's called the spinal glenoid one. It runs from the base of the spine here over to the humerus. And I've drawn it in in this picture because it's really hard to find a a picture of this small little ligament. It's called the spinal glenoid ligament. I'll try again over in this. I, I drew it in here. Spinal glenoid ligament. Now, the only reason that it has any significance is that when you see how the artery and the nerve go around the base of the. Um, of the spine, that ligament might trap the nerve coming around and you might have some problem with that continuation of that suprascapular nerve down here. So this may cause some problem if it impedes the progress or impedes the passageway of the nerve. That's the only reason it's included. It's relatively insignificant otherwise. It's just a little bit of a ligament that runs from the base of the spine over over to the head of the humerus this way. It's referred to as the spinal glenoid ligament. And it has some, it could have some effect on the nerve as it goes around the base of the spine there. That's, that's why it's mentioned. Otherwise, it's fairly insignificant. Now, uh, yeah, with respect to the movement that you're going to get at the uh, shoulder joint, you can flex your shoulder. There's a great range of movement. You can extend your shoulder, bring it back this way. Abduct, move it out. And when you begin to abduct, then the head of the humerus rotates in the glenoid cavity. When you get to about 90 degrees, perhaps, somewhere in this range, then you keep on abducting to get the full range of movement out of, it, out of your glenohumeral joint. Not only do you need rotation of the head of the humerus in the glenoid cavity, but you also have to take the scapula and begin to rotate it upward. And I think they said for e- e- anywhere past 90 degrees up, three degrees of that movement that you've achieved, two will be the the head of the humerus rotating in the glenoid cavity, and one of those three degrees will be because the scapula has begun to rotate up and has redirected the the orientation of the glenoid cavity. So in order to get this full range of movement like this, you not only have to rotate the head of the humerus in the glenoid cavity, but you also have to rotate the scapula as well in that process. So we're looking at muscles like the trapezius, which did this. Serratus anterior would help to do this as well. Take the point of the shoulder and rotate it upwards, so that we've got this complete range of movement on the shoulder joint. And you can medially rotate, you can turn it inward, you can laterally rotate, you can turn it outward. Once you've abducted out this way you can adduct it, you can bring it in. So if you put all those movements together you can circumduct. You have a great range of movement out of the, uh, out of the shoulder joint. And as we mentioned before, the uh, capsule, once again, here is what is relatively redundant inferiorly here. This is the weakest part then of the, of the joint itself. And once again, that capsule would still be lined with synovial membrane It's part of the capsule itself. And then, of course, you remember that we've got the rotator cuff muscle group coming to help to support the, the shoulder joint. Supraspinatus coming across the top, infraspinatus and teres uh, minor helping to reinforce the back part of the capsule and then the subscapularis coming across the front helping to reinforce the front part of the capsule. So the rotator cuff muscle group not only acts as uh, muscles that help to move the glenohumeral joint in certain directions, but they're also going to help support the joint um, subscapularis across the front, and supraspinatus across the top, and uh, infraspinatus teres minor more across the back. And that's what I concluded. When you take a look at what we have here, the attachment of the supraspinatus, the infraspinatus, and the teres minor is gonna help reinforce the back part of this, back area of the the shoulder joint. The subscapularis would come across the front. Okay, well, I'll just take a, a real quick look. Elbow joint uh, is a hinge joint. All it really wants to do is go like this, except you can take the radius and roll it over top of the ulna. So that means, as I said before, that what we're going to need to do in this, in this joint is reinforce the medial side, and we're going to have to reinforce the lateral side of the joint. The fibrous capsule in the front of the joint here, fairly thin. It's not going to restrict our movement. same will apply when we take a look at the elbow joint at the back. The fibrous capsule at the back will be relatively thin, around that way. And you also have, I mentioned here, you have to keep in mind, we're, we're within this whole fibrous capsule, we're actually looking at two joints. We're actually looking at the radius articulating with the, with the uh, ulna here. Remember, there's a radial notch up here for the head of the radius to fit in. And then we're also looking at the articulation of the ulna with the the ulnar notch of the, uh, the uh, trochlear notch of the ulna articulating with the trochlea of the humerus making up that part of the joint. So we're actually looking at two, two joints together all encased in that one fibrous capsule. And basically we're looking at the same kind of idea as we had before. So if you're looking at the very front part of the capsule here, once again we're going to a- attach the capsule just beyond where the hyaline cartilage would cover the end of the humerus. Over here, we have to come up over the coronoid fossa, come around this way. We have to come up over the radial fossa, coming down this way. Over at, inferiorly, the capsule will include this ligament that goes around the head of the radius, the annular ligament, and then come over here and follow, basically follow the, the design of the coronoid process. Remember the coronoid process? Maybe will have a picture of that somewhere, better picture. Uh, nope. Cornoid process come on up. Coronoid process is really nothing more than the sharp front rim of the trochlear notch. So that when you're looking at the attachment of the fibrous capsule come on, baby <coughs> when you're looking at the attachment of the fibrous capsule down here all on the uh, anterior portion around the ulna, you're really just following the rim of the trochlear notch or the coronoid process in its design. Okay, So that's a take, that's a look at kind of the basic design of the capsule in the front. And the basic design of the capsule in the back, once again, you'd come from one of the epicondyles, it doesn't matter which way we go, and then you have to come up and over the olecranon fossa and back down. And once again then we would be attaching here to this annular ligament, and then we would come up and follow the margin of the olecranon up and back down, to, the, to its opposite side here. So that what we're really doing is, I mean, the, the, the extent of the olecranon comes all the way up here like this, so the capsule is attaching just distal to the rim or the edge of the, ole, of the uh, olecranon of the ulna. And what we need to do then is reinforce the medial side and reinforce the lateral side in order that we uh, give some reinforcement to the joint because it is just, uh, as we mentioned, it's just a hinge joint that wants to move this way. And if we're on the lateral side, we're looking at the lateral collateral ligament of the um, elbow joint. It will come from the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. It will come down and attach onto the ulna. And it also comes and attaches onto the annular ligament. Now the annular ligament is the ligament that goes around the head of the radius. Take a look at a number of these pictures have designs on this annular ligament. This annular ligament will then keep the head of the radius in the radial notch of the ulna. keeps those two things together. One description for the annular ligament would be simply if you went from the front margin of the radial notch here around the head of the radius and uh, attached to the back margin of the radial notch that would be then a very simple way of describing the two attachments for the annular ligament the head of the radius is going to fit in this radial notch of the ulna. So if you come from just the very front margin of that notch, go around the head of the radius and attach to the very back margin of the notch, that would give you the two attachments for this annular ligament. And if we look on the lateral side, we're going to get this radial collateral or lateral collateral ligament of the elbow joint running from the lateral epicondyle. We'll have it running into the ulna and we'll also have it running into the annular ligament. This lateral collateral ligament does not run into the radius. It attaches to the ulna and attaches to the annular ligament, but it doesn't attach to the radius. You still have to allow the radius to roll over the ulna and back in pronating and supinating. And given that, you have to make sure that this annular ligament isn't so tight that it's going to prevent that rotation from occurring, pronating and supinating. And over on the other side, we'll have a medial collateral or ulnar collateral. We're going to come from the uh, medial epicondyle. We'll come forward this way to the coronoid process of the ulna. That would be the front sharp rim of the the trochlear notch. We can come from the medial epicondyle down to the olecranon of the ulna down this way. And we can come from the olecranon forward this way to the coronoid process of the ulna. So once again, we have a somewhat triangular ligament located on the medial side, is the medial collateral or ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow joint, coming around this way. Annular ligament, once again, coming around the head of the radius there. And you notice, uh, they tried to show it here, that the front part of the capsule and the back part of the capsule are relatively thin. They're They're trying to, I think they're trying to show this as a relatively thin portion of the capsule on the front and on the back, so that it won't restrict any of our movement that we want to flex and extend the elbow joint. And this is a picture I picked up on uh, what's known as Tommy John surgery, repairing the medial collateral ligament. A lot of uh, professional baseball pitchers, uh, not a lot, some have had this this done. They have, I guess, over time, with the overuse of throwing the baseball uh, as hard as they can and putting a spin on the ball, have twisted and have done some damage to the medial collateral ligament uh, of the elbow joint. And what they do is they harvest uh, some tissue from some part of the body. Could be uh, uh, perhaps the palmaris longus muscle, we really don't need it. You could grab that tendon or you might be able to grab some part of the iliotibial band down the lateral side and you can then drill holes in the, the bone and weave yourself a new medial collateral and then this would then all be covered with scar tissue eventually. It's referred to as Tommy John surgery. He was a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers a long time ago, he was the first person to have it done. He did have it, it was done, he came back, and he was relatively successful after he had it done. So there's no guarantee on it, there's no guarantee on how long these things will last, but a number of professional baseball players, particularly pitchers, have had this, this particular uh, procedure done. It's uh, referred to as the Tommy, Tommy John repair, and this, I think, this is just one example of one technique of, being, of doing it. There might be other techniques of weaving the and reconstructing the medial collateral, but this was referred to as the the uh, figure eight technique, drilling holes through the bone and then feeding the tissue through and, and reconstructing the medial collateral ligament. Okay, And that's probably a good spot to stop.